Please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1, verse 12. John chapter 1, verse 12. I suppose you have heard of a man named Sean Hannity. If not, he is a political commentator and has a radio show and a television show on Fox News. He identifies himself by saying he is not a Republican, but is a conservative. But the reason I mention Sean Hannity is not because of his political views, but because of his theological views. On several occasions, I have heard him lamenting the grievous state of human affairs. And then he will give the basis as to why we should expect better from ourselves and from one another. After all, Hannity will say, we are all God's children. Well, I agree with his sentiment, we ought to treat one another with kindness and respect, but I do not agree with his theology. And that is because we are not all God's children. I wish that were true. But our theology must not be built on wishes or on platitudes invented by this world. Instead, our understanding of God must be, div must be guided by scripture. And the scripture is clear. We are not all God's children. We are all created by God. We are all given life and breath by God, but we are not all God's children. Being a part of God's creation does not automatically make us part of God's family. Our physical birth into this world does not automatically enroll us into God's family. The Bible says there is only one way to become one of God's children, and that is through faith in Jesus Christ. That is not my opinion. That is God's word. And it is the subject of our text today. Let's look, please, at John chapter 1, verse 12. And at John chapter 1, verse 12, I'm reading from the New King James, we find this. <clears throat> but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. One of the key words in this passage is the word become, as in become children of God. You can't become something if you are that thing already. If a person becomes an American citizen, it means they were not previously a citizen. Being born into this world does not automatically make us citizens of God's kingdom. 
And neither does being born into this world automatically make us one of God's children. To become one of God's children means there must be a change, a change in status. As we will see when we examine today's text, there is only one thing that allows us to become the children of God, and that is faith in Christ. But even as I say that, I need to make a crucial clarification. While it is true that it is faith in Christ that allows us to become the children of God, we must not think that it is we who are responsible for becoming God's children. In terms of who is responsible, this text will make clear that it is not us, but God. At the end of these two verses, there is a statement that makes, uh, makes it abundantly clear who is responsible for our salvation and who is responsible for giving us the privilege of becoming the children of God. It is not us, but God. These two verses that we are examining today have been described as the functional center of the prologue. They are not the numerical center of John's 18-verse introduction, but they are the functional center. That is because these verses are an, an important pivot point as the prologue now takes a turn in a new direction. And compared to the previous verses, it is a decidedly more positive direction. In the verses leading up to this passage, John laid out a bleak and tragic scenario. In the previous verses, John spoke of the long-awaited Christ coming into this world. But rather than being accepted as the Christ, he was met with rejection. John laid out a stark contrast and spoke in terms of a conflict between light and darkness. At verse 5, he said, The light has come into this world, but the darkness did not comprehend it. And then at verse 10, this rejection of Christ was emphasized when John said, He, meaning Christ, He was in the world, but the world did not know Him. Meaning the world did not accept Him. But John did not leave it there. Not only has this world, the world in general, rejected Christ, John also speaks of a more specific and in some ways a more tragic rejection. And that rejection of the Messiah came from Israel. Despite all the advantages that Israel possessed, having the law and the prophets, which not only foretold foretold the Christ coming, but described who he would be. 
In the final verse we considered last week, John said at verse 11, he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. With this seemingly universal level of rejection, it may appear to the reader that we are left in a hopeless situation. If mankind will not know him and will not receive him, it appears that mankind is doomed. If men love darkness rather than light, it would seem mankind seems stands condemned. But praise God, as we move to today's passage, we see that we are not left without hope. Some will respond to the light of Christ. Verse 12 opens with a small but crucially important word, but. Verse 12, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, to those who believe in his name. It is important that we recognize that John was born into a culture that believed receiving God's blessings was a function of birth. What we see here in John's prologue anticipates a scene that we will see in John chapter 8. In that chapter, we will hear some of John's Jewish countrymen disputing with Jesus. His challengers are heated because they are resistant to the message that Jesus brings. And what is that message? Well, in its simplest form, it is repent and believe. Repent from your sin and your mistaken belief that you can save yourself and follow Jesus because only he can save. But prideful Israel does not think it needs to repent, and neither does it think it needs a savior. Oh, they want a political savior, a military conqueror, but they are sure that they have no need of repentance or of a spiritual savior. And why is that? Because as we will hear in chapter 8, Jesus' countrymen will insist, we are Abraham's children. They think that because they are Abraham's children, they are Abraham's descendants, that is the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they are by default, they think, the children of God. In fact, these men will actually go on to say, the only father we have is God himself. They believe that by means of a birthright, they are automatically the children of God. But Jesus will demonstrate they are not God's children. He tells them, if you were God's children, you would love me. But they do not love Jesus. 
they have not only rejected him, they want to kill him. And therefore, he shocks them by revealing the truth. Not only are they not God's children, he reveals to them their true parentage. He declares that those who reject him, he says to them, you are of your father, the devil. We are not all God's children. Far from it. In many ways, our culture bears some tragic similarities to first century Israel. As Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, there is nothing new under the sun. Many believe, even today, that they have no reason to repent. I'm one of the good ones, they will say. You know, it's easy to look at the nightly news and see the latest display of wickedness and insist repentance, <laughs> well, that's for those degenerates. And what happens when we see no need for repentance? Well, if we don't see any need for repentance, we don't see any need for a savior. We will believe that according to our good works, we will earn our place in heaven. And this is especially true if we believe the lie that is so prevalent in our culture that we are all God's children. This is not only false, it's dangerous because it gives the false impression that heaven is inevitable. Again, as this passage will make clear, we are not all God's children. Instead, we must become the children of God. But how do we become the children of God? Let's look again at verse 12 as John makes two statements about what accompanies this change of status. The first statement is, as many as received him. And second, to those who believe in his name. Let's have a closer look at the first. The key word in the first statement is, of course, received. We can understand this word received in terms of welcoming or accepting someone. As we consider the meaning of this word, it will be helpful for us to think in terms of imagery. Imagine having a gathering at your house. Let's say it's Thanksgiving dinner. You're expecting guests to come and share in your feast. When you hear a knock at the door, what do you do? You receive that person. You welcome them in. You accept them into your home. Now listen. At Revelation... Chapter 3, verse 20, Jesus says this, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him. To receive Jesus is to open the door of our hearts and let him in. 
We receive him. We welcome him. We accept him. But, unlike our Thanksgiving analogy, there's a major difference when we ask Christ to come into our hearts. When we invite Christ into our hearts, we don't merely ask him to make himself at home. We invite him to be Lord of the house. In other words, to receive him is to acknowledge that he is king, that he is on the throne. He is the Lord of our lives. Let's not forget the context in which this passage appears. Last week, we heard about the role of John the Baptist, who came as a herald. As a herald, his job was to prepare the people for the arrival of the coming king. And so to receive him is to welcome him into our hearts as king. Let's look at the second statement that explains who is given the right to become the children of, children of God. It is to those who believe in his name. Not surprisingly, belief is a key concept for John. And it is introduced here for the first time in his gospel. And we will see this word belief or believe many times in John's gospel. We have in this statement an initial definition for belief. Because it appears in parallel to the first statement, we can conclude that in John's mind, part of what it means to believe is to receive Christ. Therefore, to believe in him is to welcome him, to accept him. And if we were correct earlier in concluding that to receive Christ is to open the door of our hearts, then to believe in him is to trust him. To believe in him is to say, Lord Jesus, I surrender my heart to you because I trust you. I trust you as my king. Let's have a closer look at this statement about belief because there is a key concept here for us to consider. John says those who become the children of God are those who believe in his name. We need to clarify what John means by that. He means, of course, believing in the name of Jesus. But he means a great deal more. Here's why. The way that a name was used in the ancient world and in the Bible is very different than how we may think of a name. When we think of a person's name, it's basically a label that allows us to address someone. We call that person by their name. But in the ancient world, a name meant a great deal more. In the ancient world, to speak of someone's name was the encapsulation 
of all that person is and all that person represents. The entire gospel of John will be necessary to explain the magnificence of Christ's name, of the name of Jesus. All that he is and all that he represents. And yet, John will confess that his gospel will not prove sufficient to fully reveal the magnificence of the name of Jesus. In chapter 21, John will say that if all the things that Jesus did were to be written down, the earth would not have sufficient room to contain all the books that would need to be written. The reason it is important to believe in the name of Jesus is because a saving faith, a saving faith, requires that we believe in all that Christ is and all that he represents. You see, many people today do not believe in the name of Jesus because they refuse to accept all of Jesus. Many will look at Jesus and think they can pick and choose what they want to believe about him. Many will say something like this. I believe what Jesus says about treating others the way you want to be treated. That's good. But this stuff about repentance and that the only way to the Father is through him and him alone, well, that doesn't sound fair. That doesn't sound inclusive. So I, I can't believe that. Such a person is in grave danger because Scripture is clear. To those who receive him, to those who believe in his name, meaning all of Jesus, he gave the right to become the children of God. As we consider now the central part of this verse, where John speaks of being given the right to become the children of God, I suspect that our eyes and our ears are likely drawn to one word in particular, and that is the word Right. He gave the right to become the children of God. One possible reason we might be drawn to that word in particular is because in our American culture, we are very fond of talking about our rights. And when we talk about our rights, doesn't it usually come in the context of how our rights must be defended? It is often said we've got to fight for our rights. That is because as Americans, we operate under the assumption that we are responsible for our rights. Well, whether or not that is accurate is not our topic for today. But in the context of the scripture before us, we can say with absolute certainty, we are not responsible for this particular right. That is the right to become the children of God. 
The text clearly says, to those who received him, to those who believed in his name, he, meaning Jesus, gave the right. He gave it. Christ gave it. Clearly, this is not a right to be earned. It's a gift. It is something that needs to be given and given by Christ. But let's return to that word right and have a closer look at it because we are at risk of attaching our cultural assumptions to that word. In his commentary on John's gospel, Bruce Barton says the Greek word translated for us as right should be understood as being given authority or being given permission. He explains that in this context, when John writes that he, meaning Christ, gave the right to become the children of God, it means that Christ has given his permission. For those who believe in his name, that is, believe in all of Jesus, all that he is, all that he represents, we are given permission. We are given the privilege of this new status to become the children of God. This right, this privilege is not something we earn, not something we have to gain. It's a gift. And it is a gift that is given according to God's grace. Let's focus now on this gift that God gives, which is an amazing change of status. That is to become the children of God. Just to make sure we understand what an amazing gift that is, let's remember what we heard earlier. According to Jesus, in our natural state, meaning that time before we, we had Christ in our hearts, that is when we were without Christ, we were not the children of God. Jesus said our father was the devil. Now consider this. In his letter to the Ephesians, the Apostle Paul is speaking to believers and he reminds them what we were before our faith in Christ. He says, we were by nature children of wrath. Meaning without Christ, we were destined for judgment. But when we became the children of God, we are no longer slated for judgment, but for the eternal glory of heaven. Let's have another look at verse 12 in its entirety. And then we will need to ask an important question. Verse 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, to those who believe in his name. The question we will now ask concerns the matter of initiative, meaning who takes the initiative in becoming a child of God? Is it us? Is it up to us? Is it our initiative or is it God? 
The reason we ask this question is because it appears from this verse that John might be suggesting that it's up to us to take the initiative. In comparison to those who rejected Christ, this verse now speaks about those who believe. It seems from this verse that for those who received him, to those who believed in his name, Christ gave the right or the privilege, the permission to become the children of God. It seems that those who believe are rewarded with this new status. Is that the case? Do we believe and then we are rewarded with this new status? If we are thinking that we become a child of God as a reward for our effort, John will now disabuse us of that mistaken notion. In the next verse, he will make clear that salvation and becoming one of God's children is not a work of man, but of God. Let's go please to verse 13. John now explains that those who become children of God are those, verse 13, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The most emphatic part of that verse, John saves for the very end, but God. However, let's not get ahead of ourselves and let's hear John's argument, which again, is that salvation and becoming one of God's children is not a work of man, but of God. That is why we worship him. If we circle back to the beginning of this verse, verse 13, the first observation we should make is the use of the word born, who were born. Birth is an important metaphor for John. And this is so both in terms of natural birth and spiritual birth. The reason this is an important metaphor for John is because it figures prominently in the teachings of Christ. In chapter 3, we will see an encounter that Jesus has with a member of the Sanhedrin, a man named Nicodemus. Jesus will say to him, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. If you're familiar with this story, you know that Nicodemus is confused. He facetiously asks if one has to re-enter his mother's womb. But then Jesus explains you must be born from above. He says that this new birth is not the work of man but of God. The verse that we are now examining anticipates this crucial encounter. And in both instances, it is made clear that we are not all the children of God. Instead, we must be born again. There must be a new birth spiritually. 
And it is by being born again that allows us to become the children of God. But that returns us to our question. Does this new birth depend on us? Do we take the initiative? Or does the initiative depend on God? As we ask these questions, we are confronting what has long been described as a tension between human responsibility and God's sovereignty. This is an issue that will come up repeatedly in John's gospel. And as we work through his gospel, we will see that both are in play, human responsibility and God's sovereignty. But allow me to state in advance a guiding principle. When I use the term human responsibility, I am using that word responsibility with a very intentional and very narrow definition. By responsibility, I am looking at that root of that word, responsibility. And when I use it, I mean we must make a response. A responsibility speaks about a response. By human responsibility, I don't mean salvation is up to us, because it clearly isn't. But I do believe there needs to be a response from us. Christ does not force anyone to believe in him or to become one of his children. But when he stands at the door and knocks, we have a responsibility to respond to him, to let him in, to receive him. But clearly, it is Christ who takes the initiative. When he stands at the door, and knocks. It is God who is sovereign, and it is only God who can save, and it is only God who can give us new birth. God's sovereignty will be made clear here in verse 13, but first, let us reason together. Here's the question. In terms of our physical birth. Did we make any contribution to our physical birth? Clearly, absolutely not. I suppose there has been more than one angry teenager who's made that abundantly clear when they've shouted at their parents, I didn't ask to be born. In a similar way, we cannot contribute nor even ask for our spiritual birth. We cannot cause, we cannot contribute to our being born again. It is a work of God. As we look more closely at verse 13, we will find three negative statements and one positive statement. And by negative statements, I mean John is saying it is not this. It is not this. It is not this. And these three negative statements all have one thing in common. They all demonstrate that becoming the children of God is not the result of human initiative. 
Let's look at the first clause. As John speaks of those who have become God's children, he says they were born not of blood. The Greek is literally bloods, plural. Born not of bloods. According to ancient belief, procreation involved, in addition to the implanting of a seed, the mixing of bloods. And so, as we are told that this new birth, which allows us to become the children of God, we will conclude that it is not a result of bloods because it is not the result of a natural or biological birth. Our rebirth, our spiritual birth, is not the result of natural or biological birth. The NIV does not give here a translation, but an interpretation when it renders this piece of the verse as this new birth is not of natural descent. And while that takes liberty with the text, it is helpful because it reinforces the truth that being part of God's family is not passed down from one generation to the next. Many think that Christianity is something that is passed down from parent to child. If we ask someone, are you a Christian? Some people might say, well, I, I guess so. I was raised in a Christian home. We, we celebrated Christmas and Easter. Being a child of God is not passed down from one generation to the next. Salvation is not of blood, but of God. Let's move to the second clause. John now says, neither are the children of God born of the will of the flesh. As John speaks of the flesh, he's alluding to a birth that results from sexual desire. But in this context, this allusion to sexual desire is not necessarily negative. There are multiple references to the flesh in the Bible where it does carry a very clear negative connotation. For example, in John's first epistle, he warns against the lusts of the flesh. But here, the context is not necessarily negative. Rather, I would suggest that here, as John speaks of the will of the flesh, it is neutral in its connotation. Here's why. Within the bonds of marriage, it is natural and appropriate for a husband to desire his wife. That is part of God's design. And it is a path to the fulfillment of God's command to be fruitful and multiply. But let's return to the point of this analogy, which again, is to emphasize that being born of God and becoming one of God's children 
is not the result of the will of the flesh. Becoming one of God's children is not the result of our natural desire. Becoming one of God's children is not part of our fleshly desire. It's not part of our natural desire. We do not have a bodily desire to become one of God's children. In fact, the broader teaching of Scripture makes it abundantly clear the reality is actually the complete opposite. We are not naturally inclined to desire God. In terms of our will, John laid out what that looks like in the previous passage. In our flesh, the world does not know him. It doesn't want to know him. In our bodily desires, or in our natural desires, we want to refuse receiving him. We want to turn him away. Why? Because the unregenerate man has a natural, an aversion to God. We are, at enmity, we are at enmity with God. We don't have a desire to be with him. No, man loves darkness rather than light. And so, here's the conclusion. Salvation and being one of God's children is not a product of our will, but of God's. If we look now at the third clause, we are told that this new birth that makes us children of God is not the result of the will of man. At first glance, we may assume that John is speaking of mankind in general. But when he speaks of the will of man, he's speaking more specifically in this illustration about men in particular. It may interest you to know that the NIV renders this last clause as a husband's will. The Greek word here is andros. It is not the word anthropos, where we get the word anthropology, which is the study of mankind in general. We don't see here the word anthropos. We see, we see here the word andros. And this word can mean man or husband. Not far from where I'm standing right now, there is a diner called Andros or Andros Diner. And if you're driving by it on Villa Avenue, it's right near the stop and shop in Fairfield, you can impress your passenger in your car and say, you know what? That means man's diner. The Andros Diner, that's man's diner or possibly the husband's diner. Now, I don't know what message that owner was trying to send, but it appears that message may have been directed to his wife. This is the husband's diner. But in any event, John says, for those who become the children of God, this is not the result of a man's or a husband's will. John probably speaks in this way because as he is offering this illustration about a new birth, a spiritual birth, he operates under the assumption that it is 
the man who takes the initiative in engaging in intercourse. And with that understanding, the point becomes clear. Here's the point. The will, that is the initiative, to be born again and become a child of God is not a function of our will, not a function of our desire. And that brings us to the last statement, which makes clear who takes the initiative and whose will it is that we become the children of God. John states emphatically, it is not us, but God. Those who become the children of God were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Are you one of God's children? If not, Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. The question is, will you receive him? Will you let him in, into your heart, and make him the Lord of your life? And if so, and you believe in his name, all that Christ is, he will give you the right, the privilege, permission, to become one of the children of God. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that we are saved by grace through faith. And even this is not of ourselves. This faith is a gift of God so that no one may boast. And that, Lord Jesus, is why we worship you. Amen.